So this morning, I'm going to be continuing a series that I have done that's working through the Ten Commandments. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been, we've been counting these down backwards. So we started at number 10, and we're on our way to number one, and we're getting close because today we are on commandment number two. So there's only two more of these to go today and next week. And we've been doing that in ways that trace how those commandments still apply for today. So commandment number two is what we're considering today. Often I hear from people when when they read a good novel or a good book that has been, as sometimes novels are, made into a movie, that I hear people say, you know, the book is so much better than the movie. I hear that a lot from people who like to read. And and I, I guess when there are people who say, no, I liked the movie better than the book, maybe they're sharing something about themselves that maybe they don't really like to read that much. I don't know, but there, there's something about when you read a good book and you imagine in your mind how all of the characters and the scenes take place and how the description of those words just form in your own imagination how the story goes. There's something about that which has an incredible landscape before it, right there. There are no boundaries confined around that. Whatever you can imagine for those words to take place is what in your own mind the story unfolds. But when you see a movie, the directors who put it together put those images all in that for you. And they dictate how the story looks and how it feels in that way. Well, today we're talking about the second commandment. The second commandment is one which talks about images. Images that in some way represent God. And we think about that in different ways. So I, I, I want to be clear, first of all, that, you know, there, there are many examples that we can see of, within the Christian tradition, artwork that depicts God and stories of God in different ways. Churches with stained glass windows that depict that, or artwork that has been, um, that is, could be hundreds of years old now, that depicts those stories of the Bible. And, and we take that and cherish that as a part of our tradition, But God gives a commandment about making images, which is different than that. So let's let's untease some of that today and, and figure out how does that work in our lives? What do these images or idols that are talked about in Bible, how do those show up? And what do they look like in our world today and how we do that? So to get into that, I'm going to read a few verses that come from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, where the prophet Isaiah gives this word from God about idols, images. Here's what he says. Isaiah 40, I'm starting at verse 18. God says this through the prophet. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. But do you not know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't it been told to you from the beginning? And have you not understood from the, from the, when the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are 
like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows them away and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, idols. Idolatry. One of those things that maybe we don't talk about much or think about much or think is is part of a foreign and pagan culture of centuries and centuries ago. And how does that play into our world today? So so let's unpack some of this. Let's figure out what's going on. All right. So let's start with this. In those pagan times, in those times long ago when people actually made and set up idols, let's consider for a moment, consider what is it that those people were really trying to do? What was their motivation? What were they actually trying to get after? I think we can capture that with, with Two characteristics of God. Two characteristics about who our God is that explain for us, give us a little sense of why it was that people way back when made idols. Two things we say about God then, all right? And, and these are they're bigger words, but I'll explain how they go, right? Two things we say about God, that God is transcendent and God is imminent, transcendent and imminent. Here's what that means. That God is transcendent. His transcendence means that God is bigger than all that is created. God is beyond the created universe. That God himself is above all of that. God is all powerful. And and in that sense, God is far, far away from us because God is nothing at all like us. God is beyond our imagination to even know and be able to conceive who God is or what God is. That is the God of transcendence. That holy, all-powerful God who is distant beyond the creation. The one who called forth the creation into being. That is the transcendent God. We also say that God is imminent. That a God of imminence is a God who is close. A God who knows us. A God with whom we can relate. That we can understand. That makes sense in our world and in our life and in who we are and in how we live. The God of imminence is a God that takes form and shape in ways that we can approach. And we can have relationship with. 
these are things that we say about God. And these are not new things. Because all of those pagan cultures way, way back when struggled with that same tension of our gods, are the gods that are out there, are, are they transcendent or are they imminent? Are they almighty and powerful above and beyond anything that we could ever know? Or are they close, personal, relatable? And so, those pagan cultures would make idols. Idols, images, things that were meant to take what it was they did not know, that transcendent being that they did not know, and find a way to make it something that they could know. Something that was beyond their ability to represent in any way, and find a way to represent it in their world in a way that made sense to them. That's, that's how idols work, and that's where idols come from. Right? It, it's that understanding that there is a God who is transcendent above and beyond anything we can know, and then there is a desire and an effort among people to know that God, to relate to that God, to make that God something that we can know and understand and have relationship with. That's what's going on with idols. So how does that work? Well, let, let's figure out a few things about what happens when we take the God of transcendence and make that a God of imminence. The first thing is this, that when, when God is made into an idol, that it is a boundary. Idols are about boundaries. I'm going to put a fence or a border around who this God is to contain this God into something that makes sense to me. Something that I can understand. Something that, that I can understand in a way where, where it fits into my world. So an idol is, first of all, a boundary. A boundary around who God is. A fence, a border. Something that contains God inside of something that I can make sense of and understand. Right? That's the first thing. A boundary. Now, understanding how this works and how God reveals himself. Consider this. There's this passage that the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2. Where the Apostle Paul talks about... The transcendent God, the all-powerful God above us, who makes himself imminent. Not that we make God imminent and relatable, but God himself makes himself relatable. So the Apostle Paul talks about it this way in Philippians 2. He says that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to use to his own advantage, but rather he emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a man and being obedient even to death, death on a cross. That God himself took it upon himself in his transcendence to make himself imminent. Relatable, like one of us, someone we can know 
and share and have relationship with. We did not make God into that. God made himself into that. But it doesn't end there because the Apostle Paul goes on in Philippians 2. Because right after that, Paul writes this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is the Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. Returning to transcendence. Right? That God, our God, holds these two things together. That there's not a boundary around it. It's not fenced in. But God chooses to make himself Someone who can relate to us, his people, while at the same time maintaining that he is the all-powerful, the majestic God above all gods. That our God has done that for us, made himself imminent and relatable for us without the boundaries, without the fence, without being held inside. But how does this work? I mean, play this out in the Bible, how you see examples of this going through the Old Testament before they knew that God would reveal himself through Jesus. Examples of how you find people, even God's people, the nation of Israel, leaning towards idolatry. Idolatry, remember, being putting a border, a boundary around God. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the nation of Israel is is facing the threat of an enemy. So they have to get the army together and they have to go off to war. And they thought to themselves, here's what we're going to do. Let's take that Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, the, the Ark that held the Ten Commandments and the Jar of Manna. Let's take that Ark of the Covenant that stays in the tabernacle in the temple and let's carry that in front of our army out into battle because if we have that symbol of God with us and in front of us, then our army cannot fail. We can't go wrong. But if you read about that in 1 Samuel 4, then you know that battle was lost. They didn't win because their attempt there, the attempt of those people was idolatry. Let's put a border and a boundary around who God is as something that we can take with us where we want to go to do what we want to do. And it didn't work out that way. This shows us what else idolatry does. So first of all, it's a boundary. It's putting a boundary around God. But secondly, it shows us Control. That the boundary that idols put around God is a boundary that is meant for control. I will put a boundary around who God is so that I can control God to be the God that I want to be. To do what I want God to do. To follow my agenda. That's what idolatry seeks to do. So maybe we don't have statues set up in our homes that we consider idols. But it would be good for us to consider today how idolatry works and are there ways that we have set up idols around who God is? 
idols in the sense of I'm going to put a boundary around God so that I can control. Control who God is and what I want God to do. Now, in the pagan cultures, this is what the idols were meant to do, right? They, that they would have all of their rituals and all these services that they would do so that they could entice or convince or coerce the gods that were out there to do what they wanted them to do. You remember that story from the Old Testament when the prophet Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they have this duel where they set up altars, right? And first the prophets of Baal are praying and and in fact cutting themselves and doing everything that they can to their pagan god Baal to take this sacrifice to coerce or entice their gods into doing what they wanted them to do. That's what idolatry does. I think of it this way. There was a time years ago when when my family had a dog. And and our dog, well, let's say our dog was not the most obedient dog in the world. So uh, not trained to the point where we could take our dog for a walk and she would just heal and stay right beside us. That dog needed a leash and a collar because it was the only way we could take that dog for a walk. That leash and that collar were meant to do two things, right? Put a boundary. This is where you can go. And you can't go beyond that. And I'm the one holding the leash who is in control. I'm the one who's deciding where we go and how, and how it's going to be. That's what idolatry seeks to do, right? It seeks to take God and say, God, how can I put a leash and a collar on you so that I get to decide how you fit in my life and where we're going to go and how my life is going to be? That I'm the one doing the leading and the guiding and the directing. That's what idolatry does. You see other examples of this. In the New Testament, Jesus, right after he's baptized, he he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted by Satan. And in that temptation by Satan, look at what Satan is trying to do with Jesus. Giving all of these temptations to Jesus that are meant to do, catch this now, two things. First, a boundary. Let me put you inside of a boundary and then control. And here's what I want you to do. So Satan says, if you really are the Christ and you're hungry, you can tell these stones to turn into bread. Right? I'm going to put a boundary around you. You want to eat? Here's what you have to do. Here's the boundary. And do it the way I tell you to do it. Control. But Jesus will have nothing to do with that. Does not follow that. How does this lay lay out in our world for us today then? So we are not people who have statues and images and idols in our culture. But let's be honest that we are people who yet have our own ways of trying to put boundaries around God and control God. Consider what some of these might look like, how these take shape in our world and in our lives today. Consider, for example, 
I'll call it the idol of a Sunday God. The Sunday God, the God from whom, you know what? All right, there's this one day of the week when I'll go to church and I'll do that thing. But, but after Sunday, when it comes to Monday morning, then God's out of the picture. I'm going to put a boundary around that. God, Sunday is your boundary. You can be in my world and in my life on Sunday, and that's it. And I will control the boundaries around that because come Monday through Saturday, that's my time. That's my world. And I don't want God to be a part of that. Boundary and control. When we think of God that way. Or perhaps the idol of worship. That in fact we can make Sunday itself an idol of. But this is what I do and how I do it. This is my style of worship. This is my Sunday routine. And this is the only right way. Now, certainly, please don't misunderstand me. I mean, we we can have our preferences of worship styles. And that's fine. Have a preference. But let's understand that, you know what? My preference, my preference for worship is not the only one right way to do it. Because that would be a boundary. God, you're going to exist inside this style of how I do this whole worship thing. And you cannot exist outside of that. I will not allow that. A boundary and control. We see examples of that. We find that in our world yet today. That we are perhaps just as much as those other pagan cultures of centuries ago, we are people who still find ourselves being tempted and enticed to put boundaries around God so that we can control God in our own lives. Isaiah 40 reminds us of something though, doesn't it? That when we read Isaiah 40, we read those words which God says, but I will not do that. I will not be an idol for you. I will not be contained within a boundary. You cannot do that to me. I will not exist in your life that way. But if you know Isaiah 40, if you know this chapter of Isaiah, how does Isaiah chapter 40 start? What's the beginning of that chapter? What's the very first word of Isaiah 40 that begins that chapter? God says, comfort, comfort my people. So while we are people who face a world in which, you know what, we have desires to to contain God and control God and, and make God fit into my world and in my life and the way that I want God to be, God says, wait, 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 comfort You don't have to do that. That's not necessary. There's not a reason why you should need to put a boundary around God. There's not a reason why we would ever need to control God. Because God the one who is transcendent, the one who is above it all, the one who created everything. God made himself imminent in Jesus Christ. One of us. So that we can know him. That we can have relationship with him. 
that we can be his people. No boundaries required. No control needed. No reason to ever even try to put a collar and a leash on God. Because he himself has done everything to make himself known to us so that we can be known and redeemed and made righteous to him through Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word that you do reveal yourself to be a God who gets everything for us that we need. So God, we, uh, we, first of all, we need to say we're sorry. Sorry for all the times and the ways when without even thinking about it or, or meaning to, that we have to admit, we have tried to place boundaries around you. We have tried to control how it is that you fit into our lives. God, we're sorry for that. We're sorry for making an idol out of you. And Lord, we pray then, we pray that we may once again return and know the assurance that we have that, uh, that you have made yourself known to us in a way that brings us comfort and assurance that we don't have to put boundaries around you. We don't have to control you. But you are beyond all of that in ways that are so great, so unimaginable. And may that be for us today comfort that we are your people. Thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.